We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Principle number 12. The first statutory duty of straight speak for politicians and officials shall apply also to the media. There are a couple of things that we should just remind listeners about there. One is that this comes under the general umbrella of the fourth separation of powers. And the whole point of the independence of feedback to our governing systems is that the world can't run on lies. So in a sense, the world not running on lies is the prevailing theme. And when we talk about statutory duties, which we talked much more about in the last episode, what we're talking about is articulating guidelines for the reasonable basic level of behaviour that we can expect of people in public office. But to apply this idea to the press... It's really about not deliberately misleading the public and to qualify any speculative content because, obviously, if people are saying that what is true isn't true, then that's just not news, that's fantasy. But then these fantasies can lead, as we've seen, to to dangerous places. In The Hidden Power of Systems Thinking, the book, your book, there's a nice line that I came across that says that the media is part of a moving ecology of institutions, interests, and practices. A moving ecology of of institutions, interests, and practices. And then you go on to say that in media ecologies controlled by powerful interests, governance can be undermined in three ways. Firstly, by direct manipulation by owners, editors, and so on. Secondly, by self-censorship by journalists. Now, that's quite an interesting one because it includes all kinds of threats, relationships, you know, nurturing relationships, that kind of thing. And then the third one that you mentioned is data manipulation by specialist firms and states. So that would, the classic one, of course, would be Cambridge Analytica and Russia in the 2016 US election, which, in fact, it's interesting that MIT, a study coming from MIT, um, concluded that existing antipathy and the press, particularly Fox News, outweighed any effects of data manipulation by Russia or Cambridge Analytica. So what what are the main lies the world is running on? Yeah. And how do they affect us? I mean, it, how is this? Is, is this an important issue? And if it is, how is it an yeah. important issue? I mean, take the absolute top line or bottom line, the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis and all the others, 
encapsulated in this notion of the biosphere, you know, that part of the earth which sustains life in all its many and various forms. Well, we know that this is under dire threat and it's getting worse and we're already dealing with it far too late. And so Extinction Rebellion, one of its three objectives is tell the truth. Hmm. So in other words, tell the truth about what is going on on the planet, nature, the environment. If we don't tell the truth, we're screwed. The biosphere cannot be lied to until we absolutely grasp that lies and and all of the spin and obfuscation and avoidance and all the rest of it are going to do us no good at all. We have to grasp that and, and hence tell the truth. I think a particular um, point where we saw lies with regard to the biosphere really uh, having pernicious effect was in the 2016 election, where it was the coal mining industry in particular, but also I think the shale yeah. gas industry yeah. as well, and the oil industry in general, were primed with a certain amount of lies by Donald Trump, really saying, you know, you're all okay, there's no problem, you know, we don't have to worry which, you know, we'll come back to this later on, but I think that the false promise that he gave to those communities was particularly pernicious. It is, in terms of the world not running on lies. I mean, we're not just talking about the biosphere, but since that's at the absolute pinnacle of, of Leiden, as it were, mm. um, that's the main one. But, I mean, you, it's across the board. Politicians, corporates and all the rest of them get involved in and particularly now the news media that we're talking about today. Mm. There's just lies in various forms in every direction. Well, you, you very kindly sent me over a link to Seaspiracy, that uh, great documentary which really picks up on the most incredible, ludicrous and tragic lie that you know we're all constantly being told the world's drowning in plastic, we need to cut down the amount of plastic we use. But, of course, 50% of the plastic floating around in the middle of the Pacific in that famous sort of raft of, of uh, sewage or pollution or whatever you call it um, comes from the fishing industry, comes from one industry. Yeah. And yet the very same industry that, that is selling these people dolphin-friendly tuna tags and so on are making all the noise about plastics in order to drown out noise about fishing. So there's this, you know, really nasty kind of double take going on there. You know, you go into a supermarket and there it says, or it says it's dolphin friendly tuna. And, you know, we're all thinking, okay, that's jolly good. And the point that, well, one of the many points that the documentary is making is that these approvals, these reassurances to the consumer are in fact simply sold. They're mm. simply a form of income to the tune of 80 million a year. I think, I think it is 80 million, yeah. And totally unenforceable and for that reason and completely totally meaningless. They haven't a clue where the tuna comes from. They haven't a clue what the bycatch, you know. what. It's just astonishing. And on top of that, I mean, not just the sheer volume of plastic waste, but actually most of these dreadful scenes that you see of turtles and sharks and all the rest of it trapped in bits of plastic most of that is caused by the fishing industry mm. and this guilty secret that exists actually is destroying the oceans mm. 
and I have to in say many ways I'm, in many ways yeah. one of the ways that it destroys the oceans is by taking uh, apex predators which yeah. then allows populations further down the food chain to explode and then deplete resources on the next mm. level and the next level and further down and exactly. indeed they they used our our very own favorite analogy uh spaceship earth describing the fish as essential crew members in order to keep this system this kind of ec- this ecology working uh, adequately yeah and and it was i mean as a, as someone who really loves fish i mean the the documentary was a bit of a wake up call to me absolutely um, absolutely but, i mean i i now i just cannot conscience yeah. buying fish and i absolutely love fish and this is one of those areas where the press should be doing its job, and it's not doing its job. You know, th- this has been a long-running problem in the pr- press, and in fact, Harmsworth, I can't remember his first name, but uh, Lord Rothermere of the mid-19th century who started the Daily Mail had the notion that his job was to make the British public afraid and keep them that way so they would keep coming back for more. Or was yeah. it to make them angry, maybe, or just emotionally jarred. Yeah, One way or another. the fear thing and the enemy thing, of course, and and yeah, so they they keep coming back for more. And, the, and he said that I th- I think in the eighteen hundreds, mm. and essentially that's still what the Daily Mail is doing. But it sort of developed on from there because it, it, you know the mainstream media and BBC is a good example used to work on the basis of sending out a reporter to the, you know the Middle East of Vietnam. Northern Ireland, the reporter went out, observed what he or she saw, produced a report, and that report was sent back. You could argue, well, that's just one person's view, but, you know, nevertheless, these people were trained to, as objectively and independently as they could, send back a report. And presumably selected, you know, like the Kate Aides and the late uh, Robert Fisk, you know, for yeah. their commitment. To, to... Yeah, it, it, exactly so, and and you, you know, real warriors in a way. Mm. But then that changed. Um, I don't know twenty years ago, to no longer than being reporters, but the editors in the office would decide on what the story is, and the reporters would be sent out as they are now, sent out to go and populate the story. You know, go and mm. get the vox pop, uh, go and get some footage, go and interview so and so and therefore authenticate the story. So news has gone from, in BBC terms, being about information and education. It's now entertainment. And, you know, there we are with Mm. 24-hour news, false debate, as you put it. I mean, in fairness to the BBC, that's not driven by the BBC. That's more driven by the need to to compete with the likes of Fox News, Sky News, you know, the 24-hour news cycle. And, and possibly ratings. Um, so the BBC getting dreadfully concerned that if it continues to produce news, <laughs> straight news, uh, it will fall behind in the ratings. So in, in any event, it's lost its role as a public service news broadcaster. Well, it seems to have drifted from truth as being the cornerstone of, of what it propagates to, to balance. So truth seems to have a kind of an end. Once you've discovered the truth and expressed it, then that's done. Whereas balance is like this sort of endless 
debate, isn't it? Where it's all about, you know, high emotion. Yeah, and so long as it's, quotes impartial, but by which they mean we have one person from one side and one person from the other side, or, you know, the several sides, if we get into party political leader debates, then that's all right. But in all of that impartiality, where is the truth? I mean, if the, the truth rests outside that spectrum, which of course it often Exactly. Does, if you've got four lies, one person telling the truth, you know, the four people who are arguing about something that's more or less irrelevant to the truth. Absolutely. I personally only very occasionally, because only very occasionally is there any genuine news, you know, watch television news, listen to radio news, because it's actually just junk by and large. Well, I mean, yes, I, I have a couple of weekly news podcasts that, that I like very much. It's about the right amount for me. But getting back to this whole business of lies and, you know, really, I, I do find myself wondering who, I mean, who benefits from this I mean, and who who's who's really doing the peddling? Because obviously if the reporters are just being sort of trotted out, you know, to, to fulfill a story and, and do a, a sort of basically a functionary job. Somebody is behind this, and obviously have yes. people like Rupert Murdoch and so on, but, you know, how does that all well, work? What, yeah, I mean, what's happened is, in the old days, the press was regarded as the fourth estate. So, well, what's the fourth estate? Well, in the French constitution, you had the clergy, the nobility, and the commoners. So those are all those three constituencies. These are three people with aligned interests. Or three yes. groups of aligned interests. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and those interests were recognised in the Constitution. The fourth was the fourth estate. And, and this fourth estate was to hold power to account, to challenge, to uncover, to seek the truth. But that fourth estate role, very important, mm. is gone. It doesn't happen anymore. And what has emerged... What has built up is just an increasing number of press outlets, of news outlets that are essentially intertwined in politics. So, you know, in effect, they just become part of the political system. They're no longer separate from the political system. Mm. And you'll see some very big groups. Some of them, Murdoch is the obvious one. He's got his own agenda. And he just wants to push his own agenda as hard as he can. And again, what, what do, we did mention this before, but Murdoch's agenda, it seems pretty simple. It's just power and influence and enrichment. Like, I don't yeah. know if he has a political agenda beyond that. Well, he, he sort of does in the, I mean, on the one hand, he's anti-establishment. On, on the other hand, he's totally into the whole prevailing neoliberal economics, hmm. not least because that's the means to give him most power, I think. And yet, yeah, you know, there's this whole childhood screwing him up into the demon that he's become, where we saw with all of the hacking, appalling behaviour and the power games, nothing delighted him more than to hmm. have... Blair and the rest of them, and Ben Cameron and then Johnson, you know, calling him up and testing out whether these ideas were in accordance with what Murdoch wanted. Well, I mean, Tony Blair did mention that, didn't he, at the Levinson inquiry? He was, his basic line was, well, what, what else could I do? 
you know, this is the environment in which we are trying to become elected. Yeah, and in the sense of politically at that time, under that system, under the current system of governing, you need the support of the press. So off you go and you do a deal with the devil. But the devil isn't only Rupert Murdoch. It might be good to do a quick drive-by of of the other sort of players, like, for example, Lord Rothermere and and the others. Yeah, well, there's there's Rothermere at the Daily Mail and there's the, is it the Barclay Brothers at the Mm -hmm. Telegraph? There's Lebedev, Alexander Lebedev. KGB at the I mean, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Ex-KGB running the Evening Standard and the Independent. And and I mean, the the notion that this collection of powerful, powerful press barons, Mm. that this in any way constitutes a free press, well, you know, come on, pull Mm. the other one. It's absurd. It's interesting because, in a way, the one which would seem to have the most balanced news is the one owned by Nikkei, the the FT, which, again, a a foreign-owned... Yes. Interestingly, of course, the Financial Times is providing information, knowledge, education to the financial markets, to people who are going to invest in companies... Now, you can imagine that if they were to start making stories up and mm. saying, oh, yeah, you know, here's a really good buy over here and spinning the, a share sale or indeed uh, spinning that this company is going to go down, well, pretty quickly the readers would get pissed off. So they're obliged to tell the truth within the context of the financial markets. We need if you like, for the financial markets, read the biosphere, read mass inequality, read performance of government, that we need truth coming to us. They get that as truth because it genuinely affects investment decisions. So it's it's quite a simple barometer of truth. It is. Thinking about all of that, particularly thinking about the sort of press barons and politics, and of course, recent history, not only in the US, but also here, Uh, I'm reminded of a podcast with a Yale professor, Jason Stanley, who uh, I thought very articulately laid out the basis of fascism and how very specific and open Donald Trump was about stepping, you know, step by step towards fascism. And really it comes down to a, a competition of will and truth and the great thing about truth is that you, with truth, you can hold power to account. But there's a point where political will starts to kind of outweigh truth, and mm. suddenly the truth doesn't matter. And he uh, identified at the core of this what the Nazi theorist Carl Schmitt developed as what he called the friend-enemy distinction. And mm. the basic idea of this is that If someone is trying to destroy you and trying to destroy your civilization, it doesn't matter if what they're telling you is true because they're trying to destroy you. And obviously, you know, you can see how that worked for the Nazis in in sort of othering the entire population of of Judaism into horrific results. But it's interesting to also see how that played out for Trump in America because the people that he lied to about the biosphere where these people in the fossil fuel industries, particularly the coal industry, where yeah. he was saying, you know, don't worry, it's all fine. You know, yeah. I, I'll look after you. 
and you have a yeah. future and America is going to be great again. And of course, he may have played into their true emotions. But in terms yeah. of, you know, them feeling under attack and then being given a voice, this was very powerful and highly uh, pernicious. So, okay, basically, we've got some pretty good context there for why we need a principle. Let's just state the principle again. So the first statutory duty of straight speak for politicians and officials shall also apply to the media. What do we need to put in place so that this mess can be straightened out a bit? Um, First of all, diversity of news media, its ownership, its corporate governance. And diversity is occurring. So you don't actually have to read mainstream newspapers or watch mainstream television, listen to mainstream radio. There are plenty of other sources of news, and I don't mean fake news on social media. I mean all sorts of outlets um, from a thing like the Conversation, the Mint, Mm. uh, Resolution Foundation, the Atlantic, and so on. So Um, you're talking about longer form, more thoughtful news analysis and reporting rather than the sort of um, shooting from the hip kind of instant hit. And let's go and find someone to, to stab. So diversity, the requirement for straight speak has to go into the Constitution. And once it's in the Constitution, the determination of its observance will come through a constitutional court and not by government or regulator. Okay, so it's separated from the executive. Yeah, because one of the big problems is someone says, we've got to regulate the newspapers. And then, well, who's going to regulate it? Well, directly or indirectly, it ends up with the government. And then it's like, now we've gone from, you know, oligarch-controlled press to government-controlled press. Is that a good idea? Well, we don't need either. (laughs) We, We need independent regulation and once you've got this thing in the constitution then it's it's up to you know the judges and the judiciary Mm. to say well look that is a lie you can't do it and then you've got a process of enforcement Um, i suppose also there's this sort of issue of cozying up of the business interests with government you know blair making his pilgrimage to rupert murdoch is there any good reason for a prime minister or a minister to even meet the chairman or CEO of media corporation? I mean, meet the journalists, be interrogated by journalists. Mm. But what on earth is a prime minister doing talking to the chairman of a media corporation? Should there needs be, to be a wall between those. Yeah, and, and simply banned. Because you know, the only reason they're doing it is... To, well, it's lobbying. It's pref- preferential lobbying. Yeah. The second thing is that here in the UK, two publicly listed media companies with heavy news interests mm. who've constructed their shareholdings to maintain personal power. So right. News Corp and the Daily Mail and General Trust are controlled by Murdoch and Rothermere. And indeed, that because- is quite common around the world because the Murdochs, who obviously come from Australia originally, you know, there's another family called the Packers, I believe, who own another kind of section of Australian news. At the same time, uh, we then need to be looking at uh, 
obviously the competition law, uh, Murdoch has whatever proportion of the press it is and had to be given leeway, as it were, with competition law to allow the proportion of of his ownership of the press that he does. Well, Mm. that needs to be applied properly, a maximum of 20%, not the 40% he has. Mm. Then, as in America, if you want to own a news outlet in America, you have to be an American citizen. That doesn't seem to me to be an unreasonable requirement at all. Murdoch, therefore, went and got U.S. citizenship. Hmm. Well, if you want to own a newspaper in this country, then you need to be a U.K. citizen. And by the way, we're not having dual citizenship. If you then take something like the BBC, people sit there and think, oh, it's BBC is independent and all the rest of it. Well, who pays Andrew Marr's salary? So when he's doing one of his uh, pugilistic adversarial interviews Mm. with a member of government, who is paying him? Well, he's paid by the BBC. Where does the BBC get its money from? The BBC gets its money from the licence fee. The licence fee comes from the public. Who sets the licence fee? Oh, the government. And you would have seen the government tightening and screwing the licence fee over the last 10 years of coalition and then pure conservative government. So Andrew Marr sitting there knowing that, actually at the end of the day, does he really want to be too hard on the government? Because at the end of the day, there's a charter review coming up Mm -hmm. and a presto, the licence fee will get screwed again. So the irony of all of this is that the BBC uh, will get on its hind horse and complain about Russia today being a government-controlled news outlet, which it is, but actually, the BBC is a semi-government control. Well, exam. insofar as the government has started turning the thumbscrews over a period that, that have sort yeah. of brought them to heel, as it were. And so the BBC, its charter needs to be set in the second chamber in, in the reformed House of Lords. How then should we decide the licence fee? Well, let's have a think about that. I mean, I think it's set every five years or ten years. I mean, should we have a vote on it? Mm. <laughs> should Should we have an opinion? Let's have some deliberation amongst the public about, well, just how much do we think the BBC is worth? I mean, clearly, people love the BBC. And it's cost compared with, is it 150 quid a year? It's cost compared with the subscriptions that you would pay to Sky, formerly owned by Murdoch, is very little. And to say, well, yeah, am I willing to pay, what is it, 12 quid a month for all of that? Well... Yeah, I think that's reasonable. So thinking about all of that, I'm wondering how will this benefit us and what you know, what will we see in a press that is well functioning? And for example, you know, one thing I, I find myself thinking about is that journalism has, you know, it's a profession that has dignity, it has a role to play in society. And you think mm. of these amazing journalists who go out and risk their, you know, risk life and limb to get yeah. important stories. And, you know, unfortunately, we've lost journalists. Uh, Anna, I can't remember her surname, the, the girl in Russia who was killed, apparently, yeah. uh, indirectly by Putin. Also, I think of people like uh, Orla Guerin, who in the 1990s, early 2000s, was um, shot in Dublin by a criminal that she was exposing. Um, yeah you know, shocking that that it happened, but amazing that there are people in our society who are willing to take those risks and care enough to make sure that these things see the light of day. 
And it reminds yeah. me very much of James Baldwin in, in a clip I saw not long ago saying that, you know, the world is held together by the love and the commitment of a very few people. And when you see yeah. people committed, you know, I think a good place to see this, in fact, is the journalist's church off Fleet Street. I think it's called St. Mary's. Yeah. And when you go to the altar and you see the pictures of individual journalists that people are praying for because they are in straitened circumstances, either they've been kidnapped by Islamic State or, you know, I mean, yeah. you've got Khashoggi who was cut up by by yeah. the prince of uh, Saudi Arabia. It's absolutely shocking what journalists have to endure to get their stories out. Yeah. But they do it, and it's inspiring that they have that degree of commitment. So what benefit does a, a straight-speaking news media have for us? Well, first of all, you know, as you're telling me those stories, I'm thinking, right, you know, here are these noble, brave people going out seeking after the truth, and, and actually we're encouraging them. And that gives me a very good feeling. Secondly, I don't like being lied to, which is why I pretty much stopped consuming all mainstream media except at a very headline level. And for that to stop, so I can now again place some reliability on what I'm reading or watching Hmm. and go beyond that because it's exploring it's engaging, it's learning, it's not trying to take a position, this is right or this is wrong, but it's trying to inform and to educate so that I'm engaged as a citizen in that process of considering, well, what is the best way of Mm. sorting out, I mean, something like welfare or a specific part of welfare? What is indeed the best way of sorting out the whole climate? crisis and emergency. But beyond that, once we get into a situation where the world isn't running on lies and it is running on reality, then we are confronting and dealing with, rather than spinning, avoiding, you know, just hoping they'll go away, all of these major issues that we have. And that would then give me that very positive momentum Hmm. that sense of yeah finally we're getting on top of this we we know this is a problem but what you're really talking about here is systems thinking and in particular systems thinking in practice the the process on a kind of on a grand scale of understanding what the true problems are not the false problems and understanding what the true reality surrounding those problems is being informed in a way that allows people to to engage you know people individuals any individuals to engage on these things in in a practical way that again again would would positively feed into the situation that that we're concerned about for example you know massive biodiversity loss and that kind of thing yeah and and inequality and all the rest of it and you can't deal with these issues unless you deal with them on the basis of reality and systemically as you say because these issues are almost invariably so complex that you're going to have to deal with them systemically whether you like it or not and of course a proper press a proper fourth estate Mm. is actually part of the feedback branch yeah so 
yeah, we've got independent feedback. Well, it would be institutionalized under the second chamber in the system of government. But on top of that, you've got the press doing its job of giving feedback mm. on what is going on in reality. And that builds trust. And, you know, once again, you know, if you've got trust, then that we find coincides or causes happier populations. Mm. We've got a more open society, a more open discourse. It is, I'm just going to, um, I'm sorry to mention football at this point, but <laughs> earlier... Don't be week, sorry to mention football. Some people like football. Yeah, yeah. But, but for those that don't, uh, this European Super League right. came up on government out of the blue. This was essentially a land grab by uh, private equity interests who saw a pile of money in European football mm. and thought, right, we can go and nab that. Uh, this was uh, coupled with the fact that Barcelona Football Club has the most enormous debts and is just looking for a way out so that their president, in, in fact, led it. Signed up, was it 12 or 14 clubs around Europe? And there was a huge reaction. The fan base is at the absolute heart of the business model because it's the fans that pay the television subscriptions and the, the tickets to see matches. And there was a major revolt that said, no, off you go, we're not doing that, and it's been dropped. And it's sort of like the, the same thing across the board in many respects, that we're not having lying anymore. Hmm. You have to talk reality to us. And indeed, not just talk reality, but treat us as citizens, as participants in our countries and our societies, well, we've uh, seen that this week with the um, trial of Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd last year, um, another, which to me was astounding, you know, that there was any question that he would be convicted, which there was a big question mark over whether he would be convicted. I can't remember the statistics in the States for deaths in custody, in police custody, but I mean, they're even worse than here, hmm. um, that hardly anyone ever gets convicted and, and, and incidentally i should add that, that this is you, you it doesn't matter whether they kill white people or black people or indeed any colored people they just never get convicted and and at last you know people saying no enough is enough mm. we're not having any more of this you know we all saw what happened that was murder whether you like it or not you know with the football story the george floyd story you can feel that sense of agency mm. Uh, returning and and we we need we need as humans to have a sense of agency over our own lives and over the society and do you see this in other ways as well that um i we use in the book this example in east lansing in the states where i mean one of the big problems in news world is the demise of the local press and of course we must forget the local press because they can, I mean, it varies, but they can do a very good job in uh, speaking truth to power, um, revealing problems for local government. Hmm. And, and as a focus so often, for, for local activity as well. And as a focus for local activity, yes. And, and again, that, lo that local sense of engagement and agency. And so these are often dying. Now in East Lansing, a group of people were concerned so about. So East Lansing so, is a town or, or a county? In, it, 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 in it, it, it's a town, town in, uh, is it Virginia? I can't. I think it's Michigan. 
Michigan, yeah. Just some citizens thought, okay, we need to do something about this. Mm. And they started an online newspaper, in essence. And people started to file reports about particular issues from, you know, a pothole to um, a library to the behaviour, and, and particularly... That's the right, and it was started by a historian, wasn't it? You know, suddenly she's able to pull in all sorts of knowledge and knowing in action in the locality and now has a thriving online local newspaper which is doing quite a good job and that sense this is civil society you know playing its role and saying okay well you know all these organs that we've relied on Mm. uh, either you know don't aren't doing their job or have disappeared Um, so we are going to step in and do a different job there's another. And I book. think you had a word for that, didn't you? It's the the. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, citizen scrutiny. Although they liked the fact that their was it the town council or whatever the local governing mechanism was, they they liked the fact that they were centre or left leaning. But actually, there were quite a lot of conflicts of interest that were a bit troubling. So yeah. for once, it wasn't so much a kind of a democrat republican thing. It was much more a local government uh, corruption issue that they were they were tackling with some success yeah and i mean it demonstrates again i think the irrelevance of standard political parties mm. to local government um that's that's you know well, what are they doing there is is that how we want to organize these things well one other thing i just mentioned uh possibly in closing is that there's a very good book about you are what you read mm. and basically what it's saying is that if you're diet of reading is the standard diet then that's who you are and what you are and if you want to change that and i hope many people do then stop reading all the standard stuff and start reading something well yeah, that's that's a nice framing because actually I've, I, I've come across a similar frame which i quite like of, of you know to read is to read the enemy and even though there are people who may be very well intentioned in what they're writing, everybody is promoting an agenda. And I think I yeah. came across maybe it's Noam Chomsky or something like that. Who I think somebody asked him, you know, well, what, you know, what, what are we going to do? And he, he said, you, no one can tell you what to do. You know, what you have to do, what you need to do is work it out for yourself. And yeah. this thing of gaining a kind of a literacy across your media landscape and learning to critically take on information is such a powerful skill in trying to stare down the falsity and, and weirdness of our, our current media life. Exactly. And there's another aspect of consumer power. We do have consumer power. You know, if half the readership of the Daily Mail stop buying the Daily Mail, even for as little as a week, it would send a very powerful message. Ditto BBC News, mm. you know, ditto anything else. That's a very um, just, good point. Yeah, it's interesting how consumer power keeps cropping up in our mm, conversations. Mm. I think that's a great place to to wind up. And, of course, we always have a quick look ahead at next week. So do you want to read yeah. out principle number... Well, 13. 13. Let's hope it's not unlucky, but, uh, but it does follow uh, very, very well, which is we each have a duty to think before we speak. That's great. Okay, well, I think, well, let me think about this, but I think that's uh, been a great episode, Ed. Thank you. And uh, I'll see you next week. Bye.